Internet Now is a geopolitical podcast that brings you controversial world issues where we discuss their origins in the past, crisis today, and ramifications for the future. On December 25, 1991, the Soviet flag flew over the Kremlin in Moscow for the last time. One by one, countries began to declare their independence. Ukraine, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and more. The Soviet Eastern Alliance was falling apart, and Gorbachev's reforms wreaked havoc on the Soviet economy. On Christmas Day, 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev gave up his office. He said, we're now living in a new world. An end has been put to the Cold War and to the arms race, as well as to the mad militarization of the country, which has crippled our economy, public attitudes, and morals. The mighty Soviet Union had fallen. After the dissolution, the newly independent countries began to choose sides. Democratic Western Europe or Communist Russia. Russia tried to maintain its own sphere of influence over its new neighbors. However, Ukraine chose to ally itself with Western Europe and the democratic powers. Tensions were on the rise, and Russia began arming pro-Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine, while Ukraine began to hire its own right-wing militias. Further conflict appeared when the southeastern Ukrainian region of Crimea had a referendum where 97% voted to integrate with the Russian Federation. Today, Ukraine and Russia are locked in a border crisis, with militaries amassing on both sides. We will be discussing why the two are in this tense situation, what has led to this standoff, and what could occur in the future. This episode will entertain guest Michael Hilliard. Michael hosts the podcast The Red Line, and this is his second episode with us, the first being Crisis in Lebanon. Michael, tell us a little about yourself and your podcast. So my name is Michael Hilliard. I'm the host of The Red Line podcast, a geopolitics analysis podcast. What we do is we get experts from you know, the CIA, the White House, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, who come on the show and they give their expert opinions on crises around the world. And we change crises once every two weeks. Uh, so we did release a uh, piece on Ukraine really recently with the former US ambassador and some experts from around the globe, as well as Harvard, to go through what not only the history of Ukraine, but also what's coming up in the next uh, in the next few months, and what signs to look for if there was to be an upcoming conflict in uh, in the region. So, if you're interested in geopolitics and want some uh, really deep analysis for the panel of people, uh, you can check that out on most major podcast platforms. Now, Russia and Ukraine have a long conflict rooted deeply in their history together. Historically, Ukraine played a vital role in the Soviet Union's interests. Why was Ukraine of such vital importance both under the Soviet Union and modern-day Russia? So Ukraine is a very, very important part of the Soviet Union. You know, it's not unusual that quite a lot of the, you know, the Soviet leadership came from Ukraine. You know, Khrushchev himself was Ukrainian. And it's important for two reasons. One, it is the breadbasket of Russia. So most of the farms uh, and most of your food would mostly be made in the Ukrainian flatlands. So Russia was very reliant on having Ukraine. But Ukraine roughly translates to borderlands, and that's because it is the gap between the West and Europe. Now, Russia has had this mentality for a very long time of people can invade us from the West. We saw that through Napoleon and Hitler. So Russia is very keen to make sure uh, that people can't use that invasion route through. Because if you look at the geography of Europe, you know, once you go east of Germany, it's just flat between Germany and Russia. So Russia is desperate to make sure that there is you know no makes it as difficult as possible to go down that route now they know that hitler jumped off from about midway through modern day poland and he managed to get all the way to all the way near to moscow now ukraine 
is so close to the Russian heartland and some of the very important Russian cities that if Ukraine were to fall to the West, the US would have not only missiles and airplanes and everything so close to Russian main cities, but that would mean they're only, you know, 200, 300 kilometers away from getting to almost Moscow. Uh, and it's just a situation that Russia could not defend. You know, when the Russians in the mid height of the Cold War uh, managed to sort of keep the borders on what is, you know, effectively halfway through Germany, that was the only bit that was flat. The borders with Czechia and Austria, mountainous, very easy to defend. Borders with Yugoslavia were Balkans and mountains, are really easy to defend because rather than having to space out 100 men over a field, you can just put a couple of men over a mountain pass and you can defend that. You know, in the south with Bulgaria, that was really easy. There's a mountain chain between Bulgaria and, and Greece. There was really no easy way to invade the Soviet Union so they could concentrate all of their forces on that kind of 600-kilometer gap between, you know, Czechia and the North German coast. If, you know, right now that border is extended out because their troops have to be all the way around, you know, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, as well as, you know, through Belarus and, and uh, against Poland and right now Ukraine, you know, if the Allies were to go to Ukraine, it would make the border that the Russian has to defend so wide, and because the land's flat, they have to space them out even more, that it would be almost impossible for Russia to put up a good defense against a Western invasion. And as much as we may look at a Western invasion as not a likely thing to happen, the Russians don't have that mentality. You know, they're very worried that there will be invasions, so Ukraine is a thing that cannot fall. It is the, you know, they still view it as their backyard. And if it does fall, that's way too close, you know, Look how crazy US US when the Cold War when Cuba fell, times that by a hundred, and that's how Russia feels about Ukraine. To put it rather simply, Ukraine is divided into two main regions: Western nationalist Ukrainians who are ethnically Ukrainian and want a closer alliance with Western Europe, and Eastern Ukraine who is ethnically Russian and wishes a closer alliance with Russia. The two halves are not divided only by ethnicity and religion, but as Michael mentioned, they have different styles of economic production. The West is largely rural and is sparsely populated. Its economy is agrarian, and while it produces significant agricultural exports, it relies on the East for industrial production. The East is far more urbanized and industrialized than the West is and produces important commodities. Its high con concentration of industry has resulted in the West's dependence on it. But this industrial strength comes at a price. The East imports large quantities of natural gas from Russia in order to operate their plants. These strong economic ties have only bolstered the ties that many ethnically Russian Ukrainians feel to Russia. So Michael, you, you touched on this a bit in the last question, but how do you think the economic conditions in Ukraine are affecting the political conditions right now? It's a huge effect. Effectively, it's, you know, having spent uh, quite a bit of time in Ukraine myself, it's a very weird kind of country because when you go to Kiev, which is very down the center, pretty much the center of the country, you kind of have the Dnieper River dividing it in half. And as you said, the western half, they're almost closer to the European Union than you'd expect. You know, you go to something like Lvov and they're practically a Polish city, you know, but you go out to Mariupol or Karakorov or, uh, you know, out near Luhansk or Donetsk, out in the east, and they're very Russia. Uh, they speak Russian, they view themselves as very close to the Russians. And that's because Stalin, as you said, put a lot of his industry in the eastern bits and filled them with Russians because effectively he was, you know, so worried about Ukraine falling away that he wanted to make sure there was enough Russians in there to balance out any Ukrainian movement that might come in. Economically, uh, they do, they're doing more and more trade every year with the European Union. And, you know, 
the a person in Kiev looks at how, let's say, a citizen in, in Poland or a citizen in, in Germany lives and then looks at, you know, their economy and goes, well, maybe the West is the way to go. The West, you know, Poland has gone through this transformation. Why can't we? But unfortunately, as we saw from, you know, the revolutions later on, going toward the West is much more difficult because Russia will definitely pull the, heart, pull the strings on this. So economically, they are probably moving further and further to the West, but, you know, it's always a two steps forward, one step back, because Russia will pull them back into place. Uh, their economy is not particularly strong, but it is fairly strong. Um, it is one of the better former Soviet countries. But the gas, and again, it's got gas, but a lot of it is, a lot of the gas they have in the gas market they do is effectively Russia pushing gas into Ukraine for Ukraine to push it into Poland and Germany. So their actual, their domestic gas market is not as big as you think it is because a lot of that gas comes from Russian pipelines. Uh, we'll talk a bit about that later on, but yes, it's not a particularly strong economy and it is moving slowly to the West, but with things like uh, what's happening in the East at the moment, that may not be a simple path forward. Ukraine in 2006 was going through the Orange Revolution, a reaction of protest to the elections of Viktor Yanukovych for president, a Russian sympathizer. Yanukovych declared that he had won elections despite evidence that they had been rigged. He reacted to peaceful demonstrations with snipers and live ammunition. He was removed from power, however re-elected just four years later. In 2014, Ukrainians ousted the former President Yanukovych through a parliamentary vote of 380 to nil. He had rejected the Ukrainian-European Association Agreement under pressure from Putin for closer relations to Russia, and his jailed opposition leader Timoshenko was freed. Why did Ukraine remove the former president from power, and what does this mean for the situation? So effectively, Yanukovych comes into power on a, we should be closer with the European Union platform. And that was, it was very popular in Kiev, it was very popular in Lvov and Odessa and a lot of these Western cities. And he was looking like he might try to get that done. The European Union were in talks, it was all going smoothly. But effectively, Russia put the kibosh on that and started putting lots and lots of disinformation into the Russian-speaking populations of Ukraine. So there was a lot, <clears throat> there was a lot of, you know, um, they're going to ban make, speaking Russian illegal, they're going to go after your kids, they're going to... You know, and there was a lot of racist stuff in there. There was a lot of homophobic uh, stuff in there. Effectively, they, they turned up the, the, to 10 by doing disinformation campaigns that every single Russian person in Ukraine started really fearing for what would happen uh, if this was to go through. And obviously, when he backed down to the pressure, worrying about state internal domestic elections and worrying about the situation, you know, he not only annoyed all the Russians uh, in the country because they were thinking he's going to come eat their babies, but all the Western-looking people went, well, we elected you to give us more power with the West and more, more autonomy, and you've just caved to Putin. So they started uh, rioting as well. And you had these huge clashes um, in the center of Kiev, which kind of spiraled out from the country and really destabilized things. And that was effectively why the people got rid of him. He was supposed to be the guy that could drag the country towards the West, um, but you know, the Russian population were not happy with that because Russia is very good with the disinformation, disinformation campaigns. They do a lot of targeted social media posts to really hit people on the issues that really matter to them. You know, in Australia, there are similar disinformation campaigns who will hit, let's say, a tradesman going, they're going to ban this specific ute because with Facebook, you can pretty much tell exactly a lot about particular people. With Russians, it was hitting the exact issues that 
you know, really riled these people up. Uh, and unfortunately, with one, you know, everyone in the East getting riled up that uh, Yanukovych was going to ban everything, and everyone in the West getting riled up that Yanukovych was caving to Putin and, you know, their savior was leaving them, you know, it upset everyone. And even anyone in the center was not a fan of Yanukovych because his, his administration was horrifyingly corrupt as well. Uh, when he was eventually kicked out of power, he had a zoo in his house. He was pretty notoriously corrupt. Um, so effectively, he pissed the left off, he pissed the right off, he pissed the center off, uh, and everyone went to, uh, you know, riot and take in. But because everyone thought it was their moment, you know, both the pro-Russia parties and the pro-Western parties, everyone threw everything they had at this one moment, and it just it caused chaos and riots throughout the throughout the country. Uh, and effectively, that's what led to this revolution. March of 2014, crisis erupted. Russian special forces forcefully occupi occupied Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. This was after a referendum where the population chose to join the Russian Federation. The European Union and United States claim that the referendum is illegal. However, Russia continues to occupy Crimea, the city of Sevastopol, and parts of the Donks and Lushank regions. Putin's popularity shot up to 86% as a result of this action, which expressed Russian support for these actions. The majority of Russians did support Russia's move to annex Crimea, and although popularity declined after European sanctions, the majority continues to express approval of Putin's actions by a large margin. So what was the motive behind Russia's occupation of Crimea? So the biggest thing when you talk about Russian foreign policy is warm water ports. It's what everyone since Peter the Great, you know, the, the joke is that Peter the Great's dying words were, go get some warm water ports. Because Russia is in a really weird strategic position, unlike the United States or Australia or China. In winter, most of the Russian ports become inaccessible. So to do naval operations, you can only operate about out of St. Petersburg, uh, which again, then you get caught in, this choke, in the choke points around Denmark. Or Vladivostok, which is all the way near Japan. So the main Russian base uh, for all of their naval operations is in Crimea, which is in the Black Sea. You know, Crimea was you know part of the Russian part of Russia. It was a Russian, uh, mostly a Russian base for a very long time. But when Khrushchev in the in the fifties, he gave it to Ukraine as a gift, you know, to shore up support with Ukrainian members of the Communist Party. And, you know, it did, at that time, it didn't matter. No one thought anything of it because, frankly, they're the same country, you know, we're all the Soviet Union together. Even after the Soviet Union broke down, the Russians still based their entire fleets out of Sevastopol. Uh, and that is incredibly important because that is the only base in the Black Sea that could possibly house, you know, all their submarines, all their bigger ships, all their cruisers. You know, so Sevastopol needed to be, you know, maintained by the Russians. And the Russians viewed it as well, you know, we don't care if Ukraine is a republic as long as we have our lease on Sevastopol. And even, you know, after, you know, Ukraine becomes a republic, the population of Crimea are mostly Tatars, uh, usually from the uh, Russian steppe, or Russian soldiers, Russian sailors, Russian airmen, and a lot of Russians. Like, the population is very, very uh, minimally Ukrainian. So, but it is still part of Ukraine. So, obviously, when this chaos broke out, and Russia didn't know what way it was going to go. There was a lot of talk in the air at the time of, well, maybe Russia, you know, maybe Ukraine goes and joins the West and joins NATO. 
to which NATO would never allow a you know Crimea to uh, you know the Russians to have house their bases out of out of Crimea. So Russia panicking, going, we got to do something about this. Sending what became known as the Little Green Men, effectively all these Russian special forces guys, but not wearing any insignias, and they all we know they're Russian special forces because of where their equipment comes from, because we've interviewed a few of them, uh, and they effectively in the dead of night. And they landed and uh, and took a bunch of towns in, in Sevastopol and Crimea and Balaklava. Um, you know, there were a lot of men that were there beforehand. So, for instance, you find the Russians were deploying a lot of extra men in Crimea because the Russians had, at that time, basing rights in Crimea. So they could put as much men on the peninsula as possible beforehand. And effectively, they secured all the main you know, communication hubs, the crossroads, the ports, all the important bits. Uh, and it was a very quick operation. Uh, Ukraine looking to the US went, well, what do we do? Uh, and they were pretty much were told, you're never going to win in Crimea, surrender your bases. So Russia effectively managed to take Crimea fairly bloodlessly, uh, which, was, which was good for everyone, I guess. So at that point, Russia occupies Crimea, but they're not claiming to occupy Crimea. Oh, these are just patriotic, you know, patriotic private military, what Putin says at the time. And yes, there were some private military in there, but the majority of them were Russian special forces. Uh, effectively, they held a quick referendum. Uh, and effectively, the people who were living in Crimea were either A, so dependent on the Russian military bases for their livelihood. You know, if you run a bar, even if you're a Ukrainian running a bar in Crimea, you rely on the Russian sailors coming in to drink. And they're Tatars who uh, align themselves much more closely with Russia. Uh, or they're just ethnically Russian. Uh, and as well as Crimea, because it had been sort of dominated by the Russians for a long time, ethnically had been almost, you know, ignored by the government in Kiev to the point where there was terrible infrastructure, terrible roads, terrible railways. Effectively, everything outside the ports in Crimea was an absolute shambles. So a lot of people just went, you know what, maybe Russia will be better than this. And the vote was definitely had some rigging and some thumbs on the scales, but it probably would have been you know, about a, even without the Russians putting their finger on the scale, probably about a 75-25 to the Russians. Uh, the Russians, they put their finger on the scale to make like a 96 to make sure it looked unanimous. But it was a difference of warfare that no one really knew how to react. I mean, that's, the Americans were scratching their head because technically it's not a Russian invasion. You know, do you, do you make a military response? Does the American, do the Americans want to defend Crimea? Well, probably not. It's, you know, do you want to start World War? World War Three and have nuclear exchanges trading, you know, uh, Los Angeles for uh, for Sevastopol. I, I don't really think so. Um, so effectively, sanctions was the way to go, and the Russians managed to take Crimea without a real invasion. Um, but yeah, it's been a Russian base that's relying on Russian money, uh, and effectively, Russia took it back pretty quickly. Uh, and the Ukraine has never been accepting the situation ever since. So why does Crimea want to integrate into Russia then? What do they have to gain from all this? So Crimea has actually had a lot of money thrown at it. So for instance, before this situation, uh, people in, in Crimea who let's say were Russians or the wives of Russians would often have to go through Ukraine to get to Russia. So whenever there were disputes between Kiev and Moscow, it would make traveling out of Crimea very difficult. So Russia promised that if Crimea was to join Russia, we would build a bridge over, you know, Crimea kind of looks like a bit of a, a, a diamond shape. The top of the diamond is the connection between Crimea and Russia. 
but the right point of the diamond is what they call the Kerch Strait. So it's this bridge, it's about oh, a couple of miles across between you know the eastern tip of the diamond and the Russia and the rest of Russia. So they were told we'll build this highway across the Kerch Strait so you can drive straight into Russia and not have to worry about Ukrainian borders. We're gonna build better power stations, better roads, better networks, better railways. And for the most part, they kind of have done that. There's a lot of money that's been chucked at Crimea. It's still, you know, not a particularly nice place, um, but it's, it's, you know, it's doing a lot better than it was. Uh, so the average citizen is probably better off now than they were beforehand. But again, it sets a terrible precedent that the Russians have effectively taken ground by aggression. And we've, you know, we've accepted this as, okay, well, that's what it is. Because if Russia got away with this, you know, they changed the board from, you know, effectively aggression, all your players like Brazil and Serbia and Bosnia and, and you know, Armenia and Azerbaijan, all these guys are now looking at it going, well, if the international community is fine with, you know, borders being crossed and, and troops going in, why can't we do it? Uh, and this is setting a pretty terrible precedent. Uh, yeah, but Ukraine never would have allowed that referendum and they had always ignored the... Uh, the Crimean region and the Russians frankly needed you know they were never going to let these bases go uh, particularly they're never going to let these bases fall into into um, into NATO hands because the Russians would have to pull every single one of their cruisers, ships, submarines all of their personnel in the Black Sea and they'd have to put them in St. Petersburg making all of their projections to the Middle East uh, and the Mediterranean completely uh, unattainable so to Russia it was a you know giant red line they would never let Crimea fall into uh, you know into NATO hands uh, and by securing Crimea for the Russians it doesn't matter what happens in Ukraine Crimea is still part of Russia and that's what you know the Russian defense force will tell you anyway in Eastern Europe Russia continues to arm pro-Russian separatists in July of 2014 passenger plane Malaysian Airlines flight 17 was shot down as it flew over Eastern Ukraine all 283 passengers and 15 crew were killed. Investigators concluded that the weapons used were Russian supplies surface-to-air missiles, who mistook the plane for a Ukrainian military transport. Between 2014 and 2018, military conflict continued, resulting in the deaths of over 14,000 people. Many were civilians. In 2018, Russian ships attacked and boarded three Ukrainian vessels in the Crimean port of Azov, near the Black Sea. It placed a freighter to block the port, stating that Ukraine had violated Russian waters, although the two sides had signed an agreement in 2003 to guarantee free passage through the strait. Critics at the United Nations Security Council meeting said Russia's attack was a violation under international law, and NATO in response increased its military presence in the area. And this brings us to the topic of American interests in Ukraine. What is America's relationship with Ukraine, and how has it reacted to Russian threats? So America's interest in Ukraine is effectively as a buffer against Russia. This is where they want the front lines to be. If they were to completely abandon Ukraine to the Ameri to the Russians, then you would find the Russians meddling more in uh, countries like Slovakia, Poland, uh, Belarus, uh, and Moldova as well. You know, the Americans supporting Ukraine kind of keeps the Russian front line somewhere in Ukraine rather than moving a bit further into Europe. Uh, so the Americans' interest here is A, you know, effectively defense, and B, uh, gas markets. Because again, before the new pipelines have all come out, the majority of uh, 
you know, of gas that goes into Europe comes from Russia, goes through Ukraine and into Poland and Germany. Now, Germany is you know, incredibly dependent on Russian gas. So effectively, uh, particularly in winter months, all of Europe gets most of their gas from Russia. Now, to make sure that these pipelines are secure, they need to make sure Ukraine can be stabilized. And with if Russia was to have no check or balance on them, Ukraine would probably fall into a bit of conundrum again. They, it's, it's a bit of a domestic problem for Germany that if the gas, let's say, shoots up in price because there's not enough gas, because there's problems with the gas pipelines, people aren't going to blame Moscow. They're going to blame Berlin. They're going to blame their leaders in their country. So they are, you know, particularly in German politics, they want to make sure the gas is flowing cheap and steady. Uh, and to do that, they need to make sure the pipelines coming out through Ukraine are steady and secure. Uh, Russia, at the same time, still wants to sell gas at a steady rate. But the more conflict, the less steady this gets. Uh, and effectively, the Americans, A, you know, if they give up on Ukraine and they go, well, Ukraine's on our business, don't worry about it, you will find that sends signals to, you know, guys like Turkey, uh, Poland, and the Baltics saying, we don't care, Russia can be as aggressive as they want. This is effectively you know political theater of look we're going to support ukraine because you know we don't we're going to stop the russians advancing out of the russian republic uh and you know as i said belarus georgia uh, and poland are all watching this situation very closely since 2014 russia doubled the number of troops stationed at the border to 41,000 at the eastern ukrainian border and 42,000 in crimea Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said the buildup in the past three weeks was part of readiness drills in response to what he described as threats from NATO. In response to the 2014 escalation, the United States and EU extended economic sanctions against Russia. Major Russian banks were unable to obtain medium and long-term financing from Europe and Russia banned imports of American and European food products for a year. The sanctions eventually created a recession in Russia which continues to hurt the economy today. In April 2016, NATO announced its deployment of battalions to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland to deter further Russian aggression, especially in the Baltic regions. The Baltic states have become NATO and EU members since 2004. Should Russia invade the Baltics, the United States and NATO would be compelled by Article 5 of the NATO Treaty to retaliate. This would escalate into a war between Russia and the United States and its NATO allies. So why has NATO not admitted Ukraine as a member of the organization? So you've hit the nail on the head with Article 5, and that is the main reason. So Article 5 says you cannot have territorial disputes because effectively what would happen if, if Ukraine, let's say, joined NATO this morning, it would actually put Russia and the US into conflict with each other. You know, And no one wants to do that because in the US would be pushed into a situation where either they have to enter in a shooting war with Russia, which would quickly escalate, or B, admit that Article 5 doesn't have teeth. Uh, they go, well, you know, it's technically, it's, it's difficult to understand and maybe we don't want to do it. And that would send a giant signal to the Baltics and a few of the Eastern partners that maybe America won't defend you. So America doesn't want to get in that situation at, it, at, at any time if they can avoid it. So Russia does these breakaway republics. So in Moldova, there's a breakaway republic called Transnistria, which effectively, you know, is very similar to what's happening in Ukraine. There is a state that believes it is not part of Moldova, it is tied to Russia, and because of that, Moldova can never join NATO. Uh, as a, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, they have Nagorno-Karabakh. They can never join NATO. 
Georgia, as Abkhazia and South Ossetia as breakaway provinces, they can never, Georgia can now never join NATO. And now Ukraine has uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, so they can never join NATO. Effectively, by making sure there's a breakaway republic, A, it stops them joining NATO, uh, because Ukraine would have to admit, you know, to try and join NATO, they would have to give up Luhansk and Donetsk and Crimea and say, we don't, you know, they're not part of Ukraine, we give them away. And even then, they would have to try and go through it without Russia just taking another salami slice bite out of out of Ukraine and going, well, the you know Republic of Karakov is now part of Russia, uh, and where did it end? So, this keeping a, a province of, of a country separate makes sure that they can never join NATO, uh, and that's effectively the main Russian uh, objective when it comes to these kind of problems. As for the sanctions, they have somewhat worked. The Russian economy is not doing nearly as well. The Russian oligarchs have felt the pinch. The ultra-ultra-rich have moved their money overseas and they're kind of getting away with it, but the Russian economy is not doing too well. And effectively, what this does is radiate out to places like Ukraine and Georgia who go, well, Russia's not buying as much. They're not sending as many tourists. Maybe we look to the West for, you know, more tourists, more friendly relations, more trade. Uh, And that's been the aim of these sanctions. Um, have they been successful? Well, it's a pretty mixed bag. Uh, but I think it's it was probably, you, you had to do something. Because if Russia had done crime, what they did in Crimea, Luhansk and Donetsk, oh, sorry, Luhansk and Donetsk, there would have been, you know, no consequences for that would have meant that they could do whatever they want in Georgia and, you know, Central Asia as well as Ukraine and then possibly into Moldova as well. Neither Russia or or Ukraine show signs of backing down in regards to this conflict. Escalation of this conflict is not only coming from governmental agencies, though. Russia has been backing separatist rebels, which have been clashing with Ukrainian troops. In addition, as was mentioned earlier, Russia has been moving more troops to the border, seemingly prepared to escalate conflict. Similarly, Ukraine has also been backing various militias in order to bolster its comparatively weak forces. These militias proved crucial in defending the nation. However, many of these groups have committed human rights violations and engaged in far-right extremist behavior. This has brought significant controversy. Ukraine's narrative argues that these militias are patriotic forces which act in accordance to the government, arguing that they are under state command. In contrast, these are actually decentralized and largely autonomous, completely outside the control of the state. They have retained significant military and political power and are generally more loyal to their groups in command as compared to being loyal to Ukraine itself. This situation has created the danger and in many cases existence of warlord politics. These groups have been gaining more control over various regions and many groups like right sector are actually far right extremists. This has brought even further concern to the situation and the government has been shown to be largely powerless to stop them. And these groups hold significant power in the face of it. On March 13th, the government arrested 43 members who refused to comply with an order to disarm. But popular support for these groups forced the government to drop charges and free these people, just showcasing the raw power and support for many of these militias. So how have the rebels and militias affected the situation now, and how will they affect it in the future? So the rebels are an interesting situation. So let's look at Ukraine first, and then we'll talk about the Russians. So... The 
Ukraine effectively is in a bit of a position where they don't have a lot of money to pay their armed forces and there's not because it's kind of a almost a civil war there's much less uh, fervor and enthusiasm to, for people to join up to go for, you know for fighting other Ukrainians effectively so they've relied a lot on these what you know far right or really patriotic uh, groups like the Azov Battalion particularly uh, as shock troops because they've you know they've got lots of enthusiasm they're willing to you know they're almost cowboys they're willing to go in and shoot everything that moves now these guys particularly were you know on the pros let's talk about the pros first now when it came to let's say the battle of Mariupol which is a port in the south the Azov Battalion actually did really well they fought really really hard and they actually managed to pretty much dislodge the Russian separatists that were in there but they because they're crazies and they recruit from you know Poland from Slovakia from Germany from Ukraine from Belarus you know from everywhere around the area you only hire the fanatics uh, and unfortunately that means that their beliefs are very very out there so there's a lot of racism there's a lot of you know there's the odd swastika you'll see in this stuff it is pretty far out guys the relationship they have with the Ukrainian military is a bit hit and miss so the Ukrainian military kind of likes to keep them on side because they get used as shock troops but at the same time they can't give them too much you know too much leeway because as we've seen when they have taken uh, taken towns like Mariupol there's a lot of looting there's a lot of shoot before you know asking questions they don't take prisons very much you know they are they are cowboys so it's very dangerous to have them in there because if you know they were to take a, a predominantly Russian town, then everyone in that town will remember how badly behaved they were, and they'll fight for a lot longer. So they are a necessary evil for the Ukrainian military here, because frankly, you don't want to send too many of your frontline troops to go, you know, smash out a Russian position if you can avoid it, when you can just send these crazy fanatics in instead. Uh, but again, the control what Kiev has on them is not complete. Now, when we look at the Russian side, you know, most of, you know, both in Luhansk and Donetsk, there are fanatic people in there who will, you know, believe that they are part of Russia or believe that they should have an autonomous republic or, you know, they're, they're willing to fight and they'll fight. They'll have all the propaganda of, you know, Ukraine's corrupt and when they take over, they're going to, you know, kill all the Russian speakers and rah, 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 and they'll fight pretty hard. But the majority of people in the fighting this area, particularly the, the commanders and, and leadership structures, are all Russians. So, they will be uh, some are Russian private military forces cutting their teeth. Some of them are just Russian uh, conscripts who are just you know, effectively doing deployments in there just to train up. Uh, Russia will often use these do exercises in these areas. So let's say if you want to be an artilleryman or an air commander or whatever it is, you quite often do a deployment in in, uh, in eastern Ukraine as a bit of a you know get yourself ready and then sort of get a bit better before you get deployed somewhere like Syria or anywhere else. So effectively, you've got. The Russians are much more in command of Luhansk and Donetsk uh, rebel forces than Ukraine is over, over guys like the Azov battalions. You know, again, there's fanatics on both sides because in a war like this where there's not, you know, uh, an overall easy to determine goal for either side, uh, you have to rely on fanatics to fight. Um, so Russia does pay in, in that area. There's so little jobs as well that quite often... If you can't get a job in, in anywhere in Luhansk because there's just no jobs out there, you might you know, join the Russian military out there to help fight them. 
but again, the large military forces we're seeing in there are, you know, they're doing exercises, they're moving, they're trying logistics. You know, quite often you, you know, Russia does this all the time. They run exercises of how quickly can we move two tank tank battalions from, let's say, Nizhny Novgorod to uh, Voronezh <clears throat> or something of that variety. But effectively, by putting them in and doing the exercises in eastern Ukraine, it actually sends signals and, put, and puts Ukraine back on the map and puts it back in the news cycle and, you know, programs like mine, yours, and everyone else talks about it. Whereas if they were to do the same exercise going from Nizhny Novgorod to Voronezh, no one would care. So effectively, it's a it's a win-win for Russia. It puts Ukraine back on the map, it gives them more attention, uh, and it also really helps with pipeline stuff, and I'm guessing we'll probably talk a bit about that a bit later. But nothing too unusual here. Um, but yes, the guys from the Azov and some of these far-right Ukrainian battalions are absolute uh, fanatics. Uh, they're <laughs> irregularly armed. A lot of them are just... A lot of them do get, you know, guns from, you know, uh, Ukraine. A lot of them do come from the United States as well. But yeah, there are, you know, there are even Americans fighting in these battalions. It is just far-right guys who, you know, would be either anti-communist or, you know, just want to go in there and fight a war. I mean, there's some real heavy hitters in there. Um, but yeah, the control that Kiev has on them is lacking, to say the least. Conflict continues to intensify despite various attempts for a ceasefire. The result is a large number of casualties and loss of infrastructure. What do you see as possible moves in the future of this prolonged conflict? I don't think it will be a, you know, it'll probably just freeze over. It'll be it'll be something similar to what we saw in Armenia and Azerbaijan, where it's kind of a frozen conflict that heats up from time to time. Because what does either side want? Ukraine doesn't want to, you know, Ukraine doesn't have the military strength to go in and, and push the Russians out of eastern Ukraine because the moment they actually throw everything they have at them, the Russians will throw everything they have at it and Ukraine won't win that fight. The Russians are in a good position. Right now, they have this war in Ukraine's east, which is, you know, effectively they can add troops or take away troops as a, a negotiation chip with Kiev. And it's a great pressure lever that is put on for internal politics as well. They can't join NATO. Uh, and all the gas pipelines that go from Russia to Ukraine are now going through you know, Russian conflict territory. So effectively, even if Ukraine was to try and you know blow them out of the air with artillery, they're too worried about hitting some of the gas infrastructure. So Russia's in a good position. Russia is in what they want to be. Now, as well as the fact that is, if this was you know Russia and Ukraine just putting troops on their own borders, again, no one would really care if that's standard operating procedure throughout the region. But because it's... Russia putting troops into Luhansk and Donetsk, that actually makes it a, a world issue. It puts attention on them and, and shows Russia again that Russia's a, you know, Russia is still someone to be contended with. Uh, and when you have guys like, uh, you know, Moldova and Belarus, you know, having thoughts about maybe we should go towards the West, seeing Russia still operating and, and still effectively projecting military into their neighbors is, is terrifying. And they're going, well, Maybe it's not so good an idea an idea to cross Russia. Uh, and this timing at the moment is interesting because, one, uh, the Ukraine has this thing called the Rasputitsa, which effectively, during the sort of end of end of winter, or sorry, end of uh, yeah, end of winter before summer comes in, the ground turns to mud. And the same way, when the end of summer going into winter, the ground turns to mud. So tank operations and heavy vehicle operations become very very difficult. You know, we saw this in World War II, particularly where the tanks were just sinking into the mud. And it's why you have these big periods of fighting 
uh, you know, at the beginning of winter and the beginning of summer. So this is about the only time that Ukraine or Russia can do big tank operations. So the timing's about normal. The other one is the Biden administration has put a big emphasis on, on Asia Pacific and the Indo-Pacific as where they're going to focus their attention. And this is kind of a, hey, don't forget about me for the Russians. You know, by putting pressure on Luhansk and Donetsk, it shows to Biden, it shows to everyone that, hey, we should probably make sure we keep an eye on Russia. And Russia wants to be made sure because if Russia falls into the same category as a North Korea, where it's like, oh, they have power, but who really cares? They're not going to cause any trouble. Then they don't get any new, any of this, you know, the assistance and help and the respect that you know, Russia really deserves. So this is Russia calling out for attention. And also the other big thing that this conflict does, Russia right now wants to build this huge pipeline that goes from St. Petersburg through the Baltic Sea and directly into Germany, uh, Nord Stream 4. Now, that would be great because it would mean that gas doesn't have to go through Ukraine or any of these conflict zones, but it requires a lot of private investment. Now, if you're an investor looking to chuck a bunch of money in, you know, a, a pipeline going through Ukraine and Belarus would be cheaper but this pipeline going through the Baltic Sea may be more stable. And if I'm a long-term investor looking for a 20-year investment, I might go, look, let's put my money in, in the, the Baltic Sea because at least I know it won't be blown up by rebels. And that this is you know, a culmination of all these issues that effectively Putin is looking to exploit what is a semi-frozen conflict for political gain. Uh, I don't think it'll spew into a full conflict because we don't seeing the telltale signs of what it would be. So, for instance, when this kind of conflict starts to heat up, you would see shares in, in Russian defense companies like Almazati would go up <coughs> because you know that the private investors would probably have been told they're about to see, receive large orders for ammunition and, and uh, repair costs. Uh, we haven't seen that. Uh, we would see a lot of mid to mid upper level officers having their leave canceled because, frankly, you know, no one wants to get into a war whenever all the officers are on holiday in Germany. We haven't seen that. Uh, and we haven't seen the requisition of private civilian trains either, uh, which is a classic of what Russia does before they go into thing, go into conflicts because they need all these spare train carriages because if war does intensify or get worse, they'll need to move a lot of troops that are based, let's say, near the Ural Mountains or near Central Asia borders. They'll need to redeploy them very quickly with equipment to the front lines in Ukraine. We haven't seen that either. So by the looks of looking at the analytics of it, I would assume this conflict won't boil over into a heavy fighting match, but there'll be the odd fire. There'll be a little skirmishes here and there. It'll be similar to what we saw, you know, not the, not the last round of fighting in, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, but a couple of rounds before where a little bit of ground changes, some casualty on either side, but nothing dramatic no dramatic shift in the situation on the ground. I want to thank Michael for coming on the show. Check out his podcast, The Red Line. And thank you for listening to today's episode on the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The rest of the world continues to pick sides while Ukraine and Russia remain locked in the border for what seems a bleak standoff. The moves of other foreign nations hint at the complexity of the situation. This conflict stems from century-old conflicts, and it seems that the tensions won't die down just yet.